Welcome into Mock Trial Masterclass, your guide to controlling the courtroom. I'm Luke, and in this episode of the Mock Trial Masterclass podcast, we're going to talk about how you can control the courtroom like a mock trial master. This is the mock trial podcast that's for you. It's not for me. It's for you. Our only goal here is to help you get better at your craft, to help you improve. And today, we've got an awesome guest who is going to help us do that. Here's the thing about speeches in mock trial, guys. They're really, really important to get right. Opening statement sets the tone for your entire case. And closing arguments is where you put a bow on your entire case. And it's really, really important to get them right. So joining me today is someone who knows all about getting them right. And that's what we're going to dive into. It's, did I get this right? Three-time All-American attorney, Travis Harper? Yeah, three-time attorney. Yeah. Golly, man. How do you make that happen? <laughs> they, they, it's, it's really interesting. So the way AMTA works is that you get an additional All-American simply by being in the final round. So like there, there was someone on our team that got three All-Americans in one year. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I had Liz Grant on a few months ago and I introduced her as two-time All-American. I thought that was like a big deal enough. It is it a big gracious. deal. It is a big deal. And, and, and <laughs> 30 ranks at the 2022 National Championship Tournament. That's perfect, right? Yeah, yeah. It was a three ballot tournament. It was a crazy, crazy experience. It was a crazy time. Well, we're glad we're glad to have you here to to talk with us about opening statements, closing arguments, and and what it takes to deliver both at a high level. And I'd love to hop right in. Well, actually, you know, I, I was gonna say let's hop right into opening, but I'm gonna ask you this first. As someone who has done both, I've done both, you've done both open and close, which is your favorite? Um, this may be a hot take. And I think that I think that my favorite at its peak is opening. Okay. I think that I prefer the average closing, perhaps doing the average closing to the average opening. Okay. The best openings that at least I've ever felt like I've ever performed have been like some of my best mock trial feelings ever. Yeah. Because I think there's a kind of like intrigue and like beginning mm-hmm. of the trial kind of like nerves that I think cause you to actually perform like at a like very high level because your brain oh, yeah. like a million a million miles a second that like creates these like masterpiece like five minute speeches mm-hmm. that like, are just so fun to listen to. And I like love listening to openings. And I feel like they're also one of the they're one of the most formulaic at times parts of the trial, but I think it does not make it any easier to write. I agree. I agree with you 100%. So when I was in high school, I I was the closer. I closed in every high school round that I competed in and I didn't open until I got to college. And, yeah. and when my coach in college was like, all right, you're going to open on this side of the case. I was like, but I'm a closer. Like, that's what I do. That's what I know how to do. And, and, and I say now that the most fun I've ever had in mock trial was my junior year of college at Belmont. Well, I was a, I think it was a plaintiff opener and a defense closer. So I got to do both. Yeah. And it was so fun to be able to get both sides of that. But if I had to pick today, it would be open, even though technically my background, you know, from high school would probably say I'm a closer. That's certainly what I've yeah. done more. Um, it's like you said, it's so much fun. You get to set the tone for everything. You're the first that they get to hear. It's really powerful, I think. Yeah, no, no, it is. And I like same. I was also mostly a closer. Um, I opened. I only opened in college for my senior spring and Mm -hmm. I still ended up closing for nationals. So like, (laughs) I definitely was much more of a closer. Oh, and I also opened my freshman year. Um, And, but I think that like, I think that like my, my most fond, like a performance memories, I feel like have been openings, honestly. (laughs) And and that's a great segue into talking about, you know, what makes a great opening statement. And, and there's a story I want to tell as we start, which is that uh, one of my high school mock trial coaches, who I now have the privilege of, of coaching alongside, uh, when he was coaching Vanderbilt mock trial years ago, he decided that he was going to see how opening statement affected the rest of the round. You know, did the team that went open, how often did they go on to win the rest of the round? So he, for a while, took ballots and the conclusion that he came to after doing the math and, and, and looking at was that 80% of the time, four out of five times, the team that won opening won the round. 
And it didn't matter if it was a lopsided round with a really good team against one that wasn't so good, if it was a really close round. The team that won opening four out of five times won the round, which leads me, Travis, to say as we open this discussion, do you win or lose the trial and opening statement? I mean, if that's the statistic that we're looking at, I mean, there's certainly a lot left to come, but man, it's crucial that you get this part right. No, I I 100% agree. I I I I think the openings are more important. I I am on, on my team when I was coaching and when I was captaining, like openings were they weren't more important than closings, but I think that I definitely paid a lot more attention to the openings because getting them right is so important. You know what I mean? Like they you have to be so, and they're so detailed. I think sometimes mm-hmm. closings kind of do their thing, right? Like Yeah. Sometimes you have that that closer on your team that you know can like pull out a few good lines and like yeah. have an intro and everything and it's going to sound good and it's going to sound flashy and it's going to be enjoyable but an opening has to be perfect every time and mm-hmm. it has to be extremely well thought out and especially relative to your theory and how you want to like frame the trial not just like in terms of your facts but also like emotionally and like morally and how like you want people to begin to look at the facts that you're going to present you know and I think yeah since it's like so important for framing i think mock trial is all about framing and i think opening is like the epitome of framing so before we get into content based on that i want to ask you this question because a lot of coaches listen to this podcast watch this channel and i get all the time people commenting you know i'd love more tips for coaches and and so here's a question we can talk about for coaches which is if you're coaching a team and you've got just one of those really really stellar attorneys where it's just obvious, you know, they're they're head and shoulders above the rest of the team, not saying the other the rest of the team isn't good, but you know, you've got a star player on your team. Do you give that star player the open or do you give them the close? Because conventional wisdom, I feel like, is you give yeah. them the close, but I tend to disagree. I think it really depends on the competitor. I think that I think different competitors are suited to the different speeches, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think there are some competitors that are so much better when they're completely scripted right and that's not even a bad hmm. i'm not even saying that in a negative way like there's just some competitors that like to have their entire script down packed and they have the flexibility to adapt if they need to because obviously mm-hmm. adapt but they prefer to have that script there i felt like i was more of a competitor that was much more about like trying to vibe with the trial in the moment and really okay in- trial and like improv and like not that i didn't i it's not like i came into trial without content but like, yeah i was kind of one of those competitors i felt like on the team that like everyone knew that there was a possibility that like what i had written like might not be said yeah yeah for sure else that was really great that came up and so i think that like if you feel like that competitor will suit well with that kind of detailed like preparation and choreographing of movement and space and and all of those very small things that go into open, I think then they're perfectly suited for opening. But if you feel like they're a competitor that's gonna feel very constricted by that and feel like they're gonna be stifled by that, I feel like they'll, they'll probably be better for closing. Um, but I think that when it comes to like choosing your like competitor that you know is the most consistent, I've always said, put your most consistent person on opening, which may not necessarily be like the like person with the highest highs, but yeah. the person that always gets it right, mm-hmm. then I think they're, um, they're the best opener. And then honestly, when I think of that, I think of um, my opener from Harvard, like for like three years when I was competing, Jessica, she was like, everyone always says that her thing was that she was perfect. Mm-hmm. Like she was perfect. That was the one adjective that yeah. anyone would ever say about Jessica. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like every time we were in the national final, she was the opener. And like she always, in one of those years we won. So I yeah. think um, it's really important. Yeah. I think that's a really good point, and I'm excited when we get into closing in a little bit to talk about the balance between scripting and being responsive in closing, because I think that's a huge point. But for now, you brought up a second ago that opening statements tend to be very formulaic, and you're right. I mean, I've seen like memes and TikToks making fun of the traditional mock trial opening statement. And, And, you know, there are a lot of directions you can take it, but I tend to agree with the formula, which tends to be you tell the story of the case, whether it's you're the plaintiff or prosecution and you're saying, here's what the defendant did, or you're the defense and you're saying, here's what actually happened, right? You're telling the story of the case. You're previewing the trial, both through the law saying, here's what the law is surrounding this case and through the witnesses. Here's who you're going to hear from today. And then wrapping it up with a call to action 
as your theme sort of weaves throughout all of that. That sort of formula is really unavoidable, right? A hundred percent. I think, I think, especially at that high level, like, I think that's a hundred percent the structure. I think the minutia of what each of those parts look like can be very, very different. Mm -hmm. I think there's lots of regional preferences and just like, yeah, personal preferences that people have to that effect. But I think the general structure of story, law, evidence, get like verdicts like mm-hmm. that, that is yeah. something that will never change because I think that's just how you have to hit everything. And I feel like that's the only pacing that works. Like, I feel like a lot of times I see like the law at the very end of the speech and I'm like, oh, I one, I wish I could have heard that before I heard your evidence. So I know how to understand your evidence. With yeah. The- of the elements of the case and mm-hmm. two i feel like ending on the law which i think should be a very casual conversational laid back section is not i think best for the end of your closing which is i think yes. dramatic and should be like kind of the 10 moment and the star of the show of the entire opening so. and i think that's a good point because sometimes when you try to mess too much with that formula you start to prove why it is the way that it is it's almost yeah. like an if it ain't broke don't fix it kind of thing a hundred percent, a hundred percent. But again, like, I think that like openings still look vastly different. Oh so, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that gives you so much, fle- like, there's still so much flexibility there that I think depends. On so let, let's break down each of those three parts. You start your opening with telling the story of the case. Again, if you're playing it for prosecution, that's usually saying what the defendant did. If you're the defense, it's usually, Hey, here's what really happened. Here's what they missed. Here's the story from our perspective. And one thing I talk about in my book is you know, it's not just a statement of facts. It's not just a list of, of things. You're telling a story in the same way that, you know, J.K. Rowling tells the story of Harry Potter or, uh, you know, I don't know, Suzanne Collins tells the Hunger Games, right? It's interesting to listen to. It's captivating. So what are some of your favorite strategies for telling a good story during opening? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think that the first minute and a half of your opening is honestly the most important part of the trial honestly Mm -hmm. a lot of ways um because if the jury doesn't have a good story and a clear not not only a clear story about what happened but a compelling story in your favor then you're just the trial's a loss and Mm -hmm. i I think that it's interesting because i feel like as i've competed especially in college the preferences of what like a good intro has changed but i think that there's still I think there's a lot of merit in like a lot of the different kinds. I feel like right now, mock trial is very in this extremely dramatic, just storytelling, just starting at a very specific moment from like in the case. So like, I think my, my, I just did trial by combat this past summer and like um, my opening, we spent like the most of our time choreographing the openings and specifically the first minute and a half, mm-hmm. which elaborate, like, like spaced out almost recreation, almost like a play of yeah. like this assassination that occurred in a public square. And I remember at the end of the trial, a lot of the judges were like, I really appreciated that section specifically because you really l- painted what it might feel like to feel anxious in like a, like a shooting, a mass shooting, mm-hmm. and like what that must feel like and how that would implicate how the detectives would look at the case. And that was literally just me saying like, it's July, July, whatever, 2020. Mm-hmm. This defend this, my client is like here, freaking out, yada, 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 whatever. And yeah, telling this story, and you have movement and you have physicality. Like there was a sniper in that case. I literally like choreographed with my coach, like for like literally an hour about how I was gonna properly hold this like sniper rifle in my hand so that it looked accurate and mm-hmm. like realistic. And it's those tiny details, I think, in those like very peak storytelling. Um, introductions that make them very, very good. And I think they're effective because they bring the jury into the heart and the emotion of the case, I think, so quickly while also giving them a clear sense of what happened. I feel like the converse of that that I also really enjoy is like more witty introductions. And I think that oftentimes like they get a bad rap, but like I think that like one of my favorite examples of this is like, it was from forever ago, it was Yale in the year that they won, but I'm not on the side there in the final. And it was this copyright infringement case. And this attorney, she gets up and she starts her opening and it's about copywriting a play. Like someone infringed on a copyright of a play. They copied okay. the play, like stole it. And she just gets up and she goes, if I went into work tomorrow and my colleague, Miss Bates, who's the person sitting at council table, her, co- her co-counsel, mm-hmm. 
wearing the same shirt as me. I probably think that's just a coincidence. But if I came into work the next day and Miss Bays is wearing the same shirt and the same jacket as me, I probably think that's just a coincidence too. But if the next day Miss Bays comes in wearing the same shirt, the same jacket, the same hairstyle, uh-huh. the same dress, the same shoes, the same necklace, the same socks, I'd probably ask, what's going on? Yeah. I'd probably turn to Miss Bays and go, Elizabeth, are you copying me? Because when two things are so similar, it's just hard to believe that it's just a coincidence. And that was their whole theory. That, yeah. Like, these plays were like the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't even make sense that it wouldn't have been copied. And that's, and that's, such, that's such a great example of what we were talking about a second ago with taking the formula, right? Story, preview, call to action. And working within that, but also not making it square, not it being the same open over and over again, where we just, you know, change the names to protect the innocent, right? You can wiggle around within that formula. Exactly. And I think it can be suited to the person. Like, I think someone that can run, someone that wants to do a super dramatic storytelling, like J.K. Rowling-esque, like, like very imagery-based, like, opening Mm -hmm. Is going to be very different than someone that wants to tell a witty analogy that's very cleverly written to like get to like the moral push of your case. And I yeah. feel especially helpful when the case isn't particularly dramatic and it doesn't really make sense to perhaps like in a copyright infringement case, what are you going to get up and say like it's opening night and he mm-hmm. realizes that it's the same play? Like, no, it's not the same gravity. Yeah. It's yeah. A murder or like a bank robbery is the current AMTA case. And like, I think that that's when those like more witty and like kind of conceptual introductions that mm-hmm. it's the jury t- but like when i say conceptual it's not supposed to be complicated because it's supposed to be simple that was a simple like metaphor an analogy like it was not very complicated yes yes so i think like common sense and like like good introductions to like the your theory i think mm-hmm. can also be good and i think it's especially good for defense and like criminal defense openings too now you mentioned the phrase a minute ago, the heart of your case. And and one thing I always talk about is when you have a theme, which if you don't know what a theme is, it's a, a slogan, something very memorable that you put into your opening and and try to weave throughout your case that that, as I like to say, gets to the heart of your case. We won't get into a, a diatribe on what a theme is or isn't, but mm-hmm. where do you like to put your theme in your opening statement? Obviously throughout, right? But I've seen the examples over and over again, and I've done it over and over again, where you walk out into the well of the courtroom and you just start by saying your theme. And then I've also seen it very effective, probably what might have happened in the story you just mentioned, where you hold it off for a minute, you you add a little bit of suspense. Where where do you tend to uh, to want to put that? Because I tend to think, you know, wherever you put it, it just at least needs to be obvious what your theme yeah. is. I, I think I think the last thing you said is especially true. I think wherever your theme is, it has to pop and it has to be obvious that it's and clear that it's a theme. I feel like for opening, for me, I think that with some exceptions, the rule for me is that it should be the first thing that uh-huh. just because I think mock trial judges oftentimes are coming in with like varying levels of familiarity with yes. mock trial. But I think like having a theme is like one of those things that's very like par for the course for like Mm -hmm. the average trial judge. And it's going to be something that they're looking for. And honestly, it doesn't even have to be that amazing. They're honestly just looking for you to have one. So you ticked off the box of like having a theme. And I think the, the rules of primacy and recency, the idea that people best remember the things that they first hear exactly last year are very important. And in that sense, you want your jury to remember the theme, it should probably be the first thing that you say. Um, so that's kind of how I feel about it. I feel like generally it should just be in the beginning. And, you know, I've seen it done well both ways, but where where I kind of got to the point where I lean towards starting with it is when I was in college, uh, it was it was the AMTA case. You'll remember this one. It was about a, a wine poisoning. And yeah. our theme on one side of the case was, this wasn't a case of sour grapes. It was a case of bad blood, a little corny, but that's what the theme was. <laughs> well, after the round, we get our comments back and a judge had written in, man, I loved your guy's theme. One sour grape ruins the whole batch. And we all kind of went around and were like, was that said at any point <laughs> during the trial? <laughs> the answer to which was no. So I heard th- I read that comment. I thought, gee, maybe you should just start by saying your theme so that they don't think it to be something something that it's not 
No, a hundred percent. I think especially if it's one of those themes, like I feel like a, I feel like a lot of times, like when we couldn't think of a good theme, like I've heard themes that are just statements, like he had nowhere to go, like <laughs> yeah, last option, like things yes. like that. like that's not memorable, and that's not like a that's not that bad. That's fine. Like it's okay. Uh-huh. It's like, or the purpose of a theme, but that just means you have to do a little bit extra legwork to make sure that it the judges remember it. And I think yeah. beyond just just saying it first. I feel like the biggest comment that I give that my coach, um, Sarah Stubbins from high school and then also a little bit in college used to like scream at me all the time was pause after your theme. Oh, yeah. Please. Just like and not just a baby pause, mm-hmm. a gaping pause. Well, we're like, going to talk. We're going to talk about pauses later on. I've, I've got that in my notes and I've, I've also got movement, which you were talking about earlier. So we'll yeah. we'll get to both of that. Uh, the next part of the formula of an opening statement, the preview of the trial. And what I like to just say about this is do, do as much as with little as you can. And what I mean by that is, as you're explaining the law, use as few big words as possible. You know, if you're introducing the burden of proof, say preponderance of the evidence one time, explain what that is. And then for the rest of the trial, call it the more likely than not standard. You know, yeah. uh, if you're introducing witness names, we don't need to know Dr. Jacob Jinkelheimer Smith. Right. No one's going to remember that. You can just say you know, Dr. Smith or or the doctor or the expert, right? Yeah. As much as you can accomplish with as little to avoid overwhelming and confusing people. Yes. I, I think that's super big. And I feel like the, I feel like the names thing is something that is not like, I feel like, I feel like people generally would agree that it's probably good practice, but I feel like in the average opening, there's a lot of names usually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's just how we, because we know the case, right? Exactly. So like, we know who these people are, but literally when I was judging around this weekend, like there was one opening um, that had a lot of names and the other opening where they were saying the investigator and the expert and, yes. and, mm-hmm. the, agent and the, the eyewitness or yeah, the like, like whatever it is. Right. Like, and that's so helpful for me because not only is it like easier to remember because it's not super specific, but like, mm-hmm it actually tells me what their role is. I know what an investigator is. I don't know what a Shelby Jenkins is or a Tom Hanks or, you know, whatever. Exactly. Exactly. And like, it's so much, it's so much more helpful for the jury. And I think the same thing goes for the law. I generally agree with you. Like I, I totally think that it should be just simple and that you just need to say the buzzwords once so that you can check the box, you know, Mm -hmm. say burden of proof which is not a very layman's term, but you need to say, yeah, yeah. like you need to say like all of those, um, like, like buzzwords. But I think that all legal sections need a common sense explanation of what the elements. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking right now of an opening where the person tried to give a legal treatise on the difference between direct and proximate cause. And I'm just saying they're rolling my eyes because I'm like, no one is listening to this right now at all. At all. And they're not going to remember it either, no. um, especially not. And I and I think that also and I think that also the other thing about that is that like on opening, you don't want to be talking about the law for that long and getting like really nitty gritty into like the specifics of the law, because you'll get a judge that's like, why are you arguing the law right now in an opening? Yes. Session? Like mm-hmm. th- like you're like you're supposed to just preview the yeah. law. You don't even know what the charges could be by the end, by the time you get to the end of the mm-hmm. trial. Like, you don't know what the jury instructions are going to be. Like. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, 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 it's just a little crazy that someone would go like talk three minutes, like in their opening statement about like a legal issue. Just save that for closing and yes. like, let your closers do that. And not to say that I think closers should give like extended legal diatribes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they should also be pretty. Yeah. But now, now that's a great segue into the last point I wanted to make about openings. And and by the way, the reason that, that I wanted to have Travis on this episode was I put out a mock trial film sessions where we watched one of Travis's openings and it's becoming one of the highest viewed videos on the mock trial masterclass YouTube channel, which is crazy. I thought, I, you know, is anybody going to watch this? But everyone loved <laughs> it. And no wonder it's a great opening. But one of my favorite parts of that opening that you gave at Trial by Combat, Travis, and, and you can go watch that video. I'll put the link in the description in the show notes, is, you know, an opening statement is that. It is a statement you were just talking about, right? We're, we're previewing the trial. We're not arguing anything. But there are things you can do in your opening statement to clue the jury in on where you're going and already get them starting to side with you. 
yeah. part of that is your tone and part of the ways you organize uh, the way you organize information. And I thought it was super effective in, in that specific opening of yours. But I, you know, that's something that I, I think is the hallmark of any strong opener is you're not arguing and you would never even get close to being objectionable for that. But still, I listen to your open and I'm like, hmm, yeah, I'm convinced. Yeah. Yeah. And I think and I think that the usually for me, what that manifests in is like getting to the moral high ground of the case. Because I think that if you can if you can tell the jury why you are morally correct, which I think you can often do without arguing, like that is what is going to really compel people. And I think that like I think that like you mentioned the poisoning case. Um, I think a good example of that in our P opening, we were arguing negligence. So it was like the company was poisoning the wine, not like a purposeful mm-hmm. poisoning. Um and we had a very like profits over people ending like mm-hmm. in that yeah case. like is not necessarily written into the case like I mean there's a there's a little bit about like profit cutting but it's like it's not like that's like a major like like theme and there's not like crazy quotes but it was just like yeah when companies like produce like things for us to consume like we do that with like the expectation that they're gonna do so safely and that they're gonna do so without harming us and when people break that trust and heart like breach that trust like yeah be held accountable and i feel like when you that's not really arguing the law it's just like it's just telling the jury why you're morally correct like why mm-hmm. why we're here in this courtroom today and i think like oftentimes that's what and i think that that it, that oftentimes can be in the dismount at the end but it also can be also can be in your intro and it can mm-hmm. also be woven in throughout your law especially if you're like in a criminal defense opening and like your moral high ground is just like there's a burden of proof and they did a bad investigation, you know, yeah. like, that's moral high ground as well. I love that. I think that's really smart. I want to transition into talking about closing arguments. And by the way, I mentioned a minute ago, my book, which I, I talk about all of this stuff in there, the, the sort of formula for opening, how to avoid your closing, just becoming second opening where you're just repeating stuff. We're about to talk about that. But if you want to pick up a copy of that book, I'll put the link in the description on uh, YouTube and the show notes on podcast platforms. And it's written in such a way, guys, that, you know, a lot of these college textbooks don't make any sense even to me. This is written for you guys, right? It's easy to understand. There's there's stories. We're going to have fun in this book. If you're liking this podcast, if you like these YouTube videos, you're going to enjoy the book. So go pick up a copy at the link. Again, description on YouTube, show notes on podcast platforms. Travis, closing arguments. They need to be organized, but they also need to be responsive to what just happened. I can't tell you how many times in post-trial comments... I heard a juror say, I loved that you were bringing in things that actually happened during the trial. I'm going to just ask you this general question, and then we can maybe dig deeper. And that's how do you strike that balance? Because I've experienced with competitors, if you just say, go be responsive, it tends to be a disaster. It might sound good, but they'll either only talk about the witnesses that they interacted with. It'll be kind of hard to follow. But then if it's just entirely scripted, there's no room for being responsive. So how do you strike that balance in a closing? Because I think that's really hard to do, but also really important to do. Yeah, it is. And I and I think that like that's why closing is one of those speeches that I think people really do grow into that speech, because I think it really is like at a certain point, it's like, at least for me, I felt like closing when I became more comfortable with like the general structure and I knew what a closing should always look like, I was a lot more able to just like know that I'm going to have three pockets in my closing and those are going to be my three pieces of evidence. Mm-hmm. I know that like I might do some, I might talk about something else, I might bring up, bring up something else, but I know I need to go to that next pocket. Like feeling yeah. comfortable with that like flexibility, I think takes time because it's like stressful. And, it, and I think that improving is not, at least to me, I don't think it's the most natural skill a lot mm-hmm. of the time. Um, but I think that like more concretely, I think oftentimes what I see in closings is like a responsive section where yeah, like, I they like that their, like scripted portion and there's like a section that is responsive. And I think that's good because it's very intentional about like, I'm responding here and jury, I'm signaling to you that I'm being responsive by saying now yes. the other side's case, mm-hmm. which is good. Because I think like mock trial is like the enemy of nuance. Like you want to be very blunt, very, mm-hmm. very clear about what you're doing. So the judges know what you're doing. Yes. Um, 
what I think though, is that sometimes the speech can sound a little bit stilted. Like you can hear someone that has this like very particular cadence for like the entire speech because it's super scripted. And then they get into the responsive part and it changes. even, like sometimes it's like even a lot better and you can mm. tell off their script. So they're like feeling a lot more comfortable and they're getting into it and they're performing. Yeah. Like conversely, it's like, it gets worse and it's like a little bit more choppy and like maybe they're stumbling over sentences more. And like, mm-hmm. I don't think that like stumbling over sentences is like the end of the world. That's like one of the things that I felt like I learned by the time I graduated that like judges care more about what you're saying on the whole than like the fact that you like said every sentence correctly. But mm-hmm. I think regardless, like, I, th- I feel like unless you have a comfortable closer, those responsive sections will come off stilted unless someone has experience doing that. And so for me, I feel like oftentimes I like when I like to help people be responsive, I think it's a lot helpful. I think it's very helpful for the jury and for the competitor to link the responsiveness to the points that they're already making. Right. Mm-hmm. Like like a, a lot a big thing that we try to do in um, our case theory and for opening and closing was instead of like structuring your opening like witness by witness was like having a conceptual like three-part framework or that's three questions or like before the crime during the crime after the crime or yes. why he did it where he did it when he did it like mm-hmm. it could literally be means motive opportunity you know like whatever yeah whatever well may, maybe something a little more clever than that yeah i actually hate means motive and opportunity <laughs> but like it that's like the like most cliche version of what um yes. I'm describing we try to have those consistent across i like that in closing and i think that's helpful in opening it's helpful because Nobody cares about the order that your witnesses are going to testify in. They mm-hmm. care about how they relate to the points that you're making. Yes. And then you can put witnesses together if their testimony goes together and you can bring in other kinds of evidence that you wouldn't be able to do like otherwise mm-hmm. strict three witness structure. And I think in closing, that flexibility allows you to know what your general point is. And so you know the moments in the trial that will ostensibly like be important. And like, you may not know like, what will be said exactly but like you know that if you're gonna have a section about like how the medical evidence in this case goes in your favor that there's gonna be a cross of the doctor and you have a very hard-hitting cross and they're probably gonna and maybe maybe you've written your cross so that either they have to say no which is a bad answer or they have to say something stupid which is also a bad answer yeah you can plan that out you can literally say you can have a section in your medical evidence section where you're like and then i asked the doctor like blank question and what did he say you can't put the answer in your speech because you don't know what it's going to be but you have Uh everything else leading Mm -hmm. up to that and i think when you are including it in your broader points because then if you're in a point you can bring that back to like you know why he said that because of this point that i'm making right now and like the ultimate conclusion like if you can bring it back to why that responsive moment is like actually important to the case instead of just saying we crossed this witness on this this that and they had all of these bad answers and like yes yes isn't really tied to like why that's important Mm -hmm. i want i want you to bring me to moments in the trial that like will help me decide on the elements that like are clear very clear and clarifying moments where like yes that you're correct like that is an exemplary moment of like why you're right on this particular point i love that and i'm going to steal that with my team this year the idea of structuring your closing in a memorable way right you know what Mm -hmm. what she heard what she did what she saw or something like that and the reasons i love that is first of all it forces you to listen throughout the trial, which is what we talk to our students about all the time. You know, even though we give you scripts, you have to listen because you can't be responsive if you're not listening. Uh, the number number two is that it's it's going to be naturally memorable in the same way that a theme is going to be memorable. Right. When you use that repetitive language, the things she saw, the things she heard, the things she did. Right. Uh, you know, even if it was means motive opportunity. Right. That sort of repetition. It's memorable. But also when you use that structure, it forces you to argue which is a mistake I see a lot of maybe amateur teams, amateurish teams make a lot, which is that opening or or closing argument just becomes opening statement number two. Opening statement Uh is you're going to hear, and then the closing argument is just you heard. It's the opening statement repeated in the past tense. And when you structure your closing in this way, it forces you to actually go into the trenches and argue. Yeah, because you have to think about what should go where because they all are important to different parts of your case. And like... Mm -hmm having to do that mental legwork is like important for yourself as a competitor. Mm-hmm. One, people even have more flexibility to know what's important. So even if you need to bring in, if you have to like cut something else to talk about this really crazy moment in the trial that you weren't, that you weren't expecting to come up, you know why it's important because you know why you were going to talk about this other thing because they proved the same point because mm-hmm. they're all the same section because that's what this section is about, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it does force you 
to really think about like why your evidence is important. It's not just, you're not talking about each of your witnesses just to talk about them. You're talking about them because they prove very specific points and like maybe they prove very specific legal elements. Like there's so many ways to structure it. Um, but I think that oftentimes like having that sub, we call it a sub theme structure um, mm -hmm. is um, really, really helpful. I love that. I think that's gold. And I think everyone listening, go apply that to your closings because it, it it's going to work. I, I promise you that's going to work. I want to talk about delivery now, things we can apply to opening and closing. We talked a lot about the content, what to say. Now I want to talk about how to say it. Mm. And there's really two things that immediately come to my mind, which is movement that plays into it and also the power of the pause. We've kind of highlighted both of those things so far. And so I'd like to just dig into each of them a little bit further. Let's start with movement because you were talking earlier about giving this opening at trial by combat where you're sort of play acting the downtown scene where this assassination had taken place. And and because of that, the jury was number one, they were complimentary of you, but also in the moment, they probably understood the story a whole lot better. So what are some of your favorite tips for intentional movement? Because if I'm being honest, that was always something I struggled with. Not that I wasn't moving at all but that the movement was sort of chaotic at times just because I was so, I guess, harebrained in on the content and so excited to, 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 to say the things that the movement just kind of got lost. So what are some of your tips for moving well during a speech? Yeah, I think it's really, really important. I, when, I, um, when I was captaining, I used to say all the time, mock trial is 20% what you say, 80% how you say it. Yeah, and yeah. That includes your movement because honestly they're not judges are not supposed to score on the merits of the case. They're scoring on your performance mm -hmm. and that how you perform it determines how compelling it is. And I think movement's a really big part of that. Um, and I think that the big thing about movement is that oftentimes I feel like it's, it, it, I feel like when it comes to mock trial performance in general, and also about movement, I think that it's very easy to get in your own head and think that you're doing too much, mm -hmm. right. To feel like you're, you're being really over exaggerated or you're, or you're, you're doing like you're being too dramatic nine times out of ten the average mock trial person that thinks they're too dramatic is not dramatic enough usually. yeah yeah because now it, now we've both seen it go the other way where as i heard uh, someone from uh, rhodes college once say you know you can only score a 10 in mock trial and you seem to be going for a 20 no no exactly no i think and i think that's true like you don't want to be like over the top right but like and i think that's what where the purposefulness comes in right because i think oftentimes these over like very over dramatic speeches are like over dramatic in the sense that they're doing too much and there's not like there's not enough discernment about like when you're particular when, when what you're doing when and like yeah you're doing it and mm -hmm. why this particular like dramatic choice is the right one to mm -hmm. do um, and I think with movement, um, this relates to movement because I think that like that, like acting out the downtown scene was extremely dramatic and it was extremely detailed mm -hmm. and it was extremely like well planned. And like, I felt silly a lot of the time when I was doing it. Like there was a time where like, like my coach was literally like, I need you in the moment that like the shooting starts happening and she starts looking for the shooter. You're literally going to like almost run up to the jury like literally almost run up to the jury. And I remember the first time I tried to do, it, I was like, Oh my God, this feels so uncomfortable. Like yeah. crazy. And then she filmed it and it looked more awkward when I was like half running, trying to be a little dramatic than when I yeah. was like, actually like acting it out. Mm -hmm. And I think that movement is oftentimes about committing to the movement, which makes it look purposeful. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes like committing to the movement, like may feel a little wacky, but I think that like, if you're talking about a call, it's totally fair to use a banana phone. Absolutely. Like, absolutely. And the, it's like even small things like that, that are like purposeful, that are illustrating what's happening to the jury. If there's a long distance in the courtroom, say when you're, as you demonstrate the long distance, say that he walked from here and then walk, 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 walk all the way over there. It demonstrates uh -huh jury physically purposefully that this is a long distance yeah. and i think that like it's movement that that kind of movement is really important but not all of it has to be illustrating right i also think it's very fair to have like structural movement like i think this is especially important in opening like if you're going to have a sub theme structure where you have three points you should like 
probably go to three different places in the well during those three points, oftentimes in a line in front of the jury, right? You yes. All the way to the left and then in the middle and then on the right, or actually uh-huh. I like from all the way to the left, all the way to the right to end in the middle. Uh-huh. Um, and then like stepping back for like the very last part of your opening or stepping forward. Like, and I think that uh-huh. is also helpful because you're not necessarily illustrating something that's happening in the case. You're illustrating the jury to the jury, your structure, like how you're yeah. the case, which yeah. is equally as helpful. Like it's equally as helpful for the jury to know that, ah, there are three points that I need to remember. A jury member could be writing a point, look down, not really be paying, be paying attention, can look up, see that you walk to a different place and go like, ah, okay. So that point that we were just talking about is yes. over. Yes. I get it. I missed that point. We're on a new point now. I should mm-hmm. pay right and i think that like a lot a lot of times movement and like also like i think pausing is like this too but we'll talk about that later like i think um but like it's very practical because like judges are writing comments and scoring you yes also trying to pay attention to you and there are certain things that you can do to help them in that endeavor (laughs) i I think my favorite movement is i love to use antithesis in mock trial speeches was if you don't know what antithesis is guys that's (laughs) You know, you're sort of contrasting two ideas, right? She yeah. said it was cold, but it was actually hot. Uh, you know, he he said the car was nice, but actually it was dirty, right? You're contrasting these two ideas. And when you're doing that in a speech, which happens in virtually every opening and closing, I love to have a spot where I stand for the good stuff and then a spot where I stand for the bad stuff. You know, you're standing in one spot and you're saying, you know, maybe you're on defense and it's a it's a criminal case and you're saying the government just got up here and they told you this and they told you this and they said that the defendant did this and did that. But then you take a step over and you say, but what you're going to learn today through the facts is that this is really a case about this. And but but Mr. or Miss So-and-so actually forgot to tell you such and such. Right. I, I think that's really powerful. And, and above all, you know, you made the uh-huh. point, Travis, that using your movement can help punctuate your speech. It can help the jury stay focused and not feel overwhelmed. And at the same time, I always say that the whole key to winning mock trial is controlling the courtroom. The team that controls the courtroom more usually wins around. And mm-hmm. if you're running, walking around and owning the space, right, that plays directly into that. A hundred percent. I think, I think, uh, especially weirdly, I think this is especially true for closing where oftentimes you have lots of, lots of high points, like lots of dramatic moments, lots of mm-hmm. good lots of good moments to be dramatic um, because they're oftentimes a little bit longer too. Sometimes. Um, I think movement is just such a great way to just like create that like 10 moment in your speech, like that moment where everyone's like, wow, you are a great competitor because you're owning this space right now. Like, I feel like as a closer, like I was known honestly for running around the courtroom when I Mm -hmm. was, when I was closing, like I, even in my last closing at trial by combat, like I had this moment, I had this moment where like. Basically, my I was defending the, like the defendant, right? And they had lied to the police because they were like worried about like they were worried about being blamed for the crime anyway, right? And that's like their whole bit. They were like, I lied because I thought they were going to assume I was going to do it, and so I just wanted to get it. Like I didn't think I know I didn't do it, and I lied. Mm-hmm. Because it was going to happen. And in that moment, I'm standing in front of the jury. I'm like, and th- and the prosecutors want to ask you why, and then I I like almost run to the back of the jury to like the back of the gallery, and I'm like. And I put my arms all the way out, like Jesus hands, like this is why members of the jury that she would be in a courtroom in front of three prosecutors, a judge and a jury being tried for a crime that she didn't commit. And like, I remember people told me afterwards that they were like, that was the moment like of the whole trial when you literally walked to the entrance of the courtroom and like back. And I think Mm -hmm. it seems like a lot, but I think that like showing that you're willing to like use the courtroom and acknowledge that this is like an actual space right like one of my other favorite uses of space is when people are talking about the burden or like presumption of innocence when they're like and when my client walked through those courtroom doors and they go to the courtroom doors they don't just point to them they go to the courtroom doors they say when my client walked through these courtroom doors they walk down the aisle and they say walk down the aisle sat on this stand like they act out like that is like so powerful yeah like really demonstrates that you're confident and like you know what this space is used for and you know what happens in this space and you like are confident in this space. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. Th- there's one more element about delivery that I want to touch on. Before we get to that, I want to make sure everybody knows I love sitting with teams and listening to their speeches and being able to tell you, hey, here's what you're doing well. Here's how you can make it better. 
just last year, I was sitting with the team doing that, listening to some of their material, and we spent some time together, and they wound up going on to uh, to win Empire. And and so I'd be happy to do that with your team, too. If you're interested in that, you can schedule coaching with me by clicking the link in the description on YouTube or in the show notes on podcast platforms. But one last element of delivery to talk about, and that is vocal variety and the pause. If you are monotonous in your opening or your closing or really whatever in mock trial, but specifically in speeches, I will stop listening if I am scoring you. And I imagine that others will too. A hundred percent. And I think that manifests in like so many different ways, because I think on the one hand, you have perhaps the speech attorney that's completely monotone. And that's not very pleasant to listen to. But I think on the other hand, you have the speech attorney that has mastered a particular cadence that they're really good at that sounds really nice but you realize that they are doing that cadence on every single sentence mm-hmm. and by minute two of the closing or opening you're like yes okay, well i really like that you can do this intonation but you do it on every like you know what i mean like yeah exactly it's sounding the same way on every sentence mm-hmm. um and that's why i think variation the name of the game when it comes to like speaking and like vocal techniques is really just variation it's always just about doing something differently and oftentimes it does matter what that what like exactly how it is different but i think especially when you're doing repetitions like sometimes i'll tell like people that i'm working with like can you just do the third one a different way like i don't really tell them how to do it but like if you have three things in a list that all like sound similar like she chose to do this she chose to do that she chose to do this like Mm -hmm. all three should not sound the same yes like they should not and like if they sound the same, it's going to sound boring. And oftentimes it's just a tiny change. It's oftentimes changing the emphasis of the sentence. Maybe uh-huh. it's emphasis on a different word. Maybe you use a higher register of your voice. Maybe it's like on a different rhythm, because I think that like, like a very, like almost in a very musical way, um, I was in acapella group in college. So like I sang a lot. So I felt like I think of it like that, like, like having variation, like literally using all of the parts of your voice, like mm-hmm. using the high parts of your voice, using the low parts of your voice, using the mm-hmm. quiet parts of your voice, using the loud parts of your yeah, voice. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what always has come natural to me as just a speaker in general is the uh, the the range of the voice in terms of getting really, really excited and really, you know, big point. And then here's the the most important point. What, what I have struggled with is the volume. I tend to just want to be loud and be loud the whole time. But one thing that I've learned, like you were just talking about, is it's not just about the range of your voice. It's also about the dynamic, the volume of your voice. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think that like a an intense whisper in a speech Mm -hmm. like can be extremely powerful. Oh, yeah. Obviously, like and I think that like I think on the whole, if someone asks me, like, should I be quiet or loud in a trial? I would say loud. You should be Mm -hmm. projecting and you should always be heard um but i think that and i feel like honestly this is the theater thing like projecting is not always sounding like you're speaking loudly Mm -hmm. and it's that's a very hard thing i feel like to conceptualize is that like sometimes you like you don't want it to sound like you're screaming but like you need to like put the loudness out there like even like maybe you're not actually whispering but it's like a lot like it's definitely a different register of your voice and you need to like project whisper like yeah like a breathy like sentence you know Mm -hmm. and that gives the effect of a whisper but like while also being heard um and so i think that like having having just moments of contrast are super important i think contrast are big too like i think the best moments are when someone's like getting really fat like a lot faster and a lot louder and then it breaks and then there's a gaping pause then they're quiet Mm-hmm. because that does two things once it's just, it's just dramatic and fun to listen to but yeah if your judge is writing notes and you have a gaping pause and you were just yelling they're gonna go whoa what's happening yes like, what just happened why is it quiet now you were just yelling um and it, it gets their attention back on you um which and, I and, and the thing about the pause is a lot of young students who i coach will be uncomfortable with the pausing at first because they feel like it's awkward they feel like they're just leaving the blank air but when, when we were watching your opening, Travis, for that film session video, I think I counted like eight or 10 seconds at one point. You just stood there. And, and one thing I pointed out to the audience was, hey, no one, you, you know, when you were watching that, you didn't go, when's he going to start talking again? This is awkward. You were you were like, on what, what really happened is you were on the edge of your seat waiting for the next word. 
And I think it's important to pause like that throughout your speeches, right? You, as you were saying, to punctuate your important points. But here's where I think the pause often gets forgotten. Mm. And I think is super important to do. And I think you'll agree with me on this, which is, okay, we finish our opening. We repeat our theme. We're going to ask you, find the defendant. Not guilty. Thank you. And then we run back to council table. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is one of my pet peeves. You got to let it sit. You got mm-hmm. it. I think, I think that's a thing for speeches, but I also think it's true for directs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Crosses. I think that like any like the ending of anything in mock trial should oftentimes be the strong like the opening and the end of whatever you're doing, whether it's a direct cross or speech should always be probably the best parts because mm-hmm. those are the parts that people are going to remember. Yeah. And you don't want to like ruin the moment and like like detract from the gravity of this moment by like like scattering out of the well really quickly. Like that's so like, you know, like stand there. They're not going to tell you, they're not going to kick you out the well. Like they're not going to be like, sit down. Like they're, they're looking at you. And yeah. like, and like, obviously like if you wait, if you put your pause, like before you say thank you, like that's probably the best thing to do. So that like, there's a reason you're standing up there. Like you're letting it sit and then you thank the jury for listening to you. I yeah. think that's oftentimes a good place to pause. Travis, let's wrap up like I do with every guest who comes on the Mock Trial Masterclass podcast, and that is by asking two questions, because, you know, a lot of people listen to this show with varying levels of experience. I'm sure we've got some great competitors who are trying to get better. And and I I got a lot of people who don't really know what they're doing because they're new to this and they want to know what they're doing. Right. They want to learn. And so I think it's important hearing from someone like you who is as accomplished as you are to hear from things that you've done in the past in mock trial that maybe didn't go so well. I think that can be comforting so what i would love for you to share with us travis as we close out is what is your biggest triumph in mock trial and also what was your biggest failure in mock trial this can be an award this can be a a literal accomplishment you know we won first at nationals which i know you did or it can be you know i asked this dumb question during cross and the witness ran around on me or something like that yeah Mm. that's such a good question so starting with triumph yeah we'll start with the triumph okay okay um, I think I would say that my senior year, um, the team, it was very interesting because we had previously the year in the year previous had just won nationals and mm-hmm. that team, that, that a team had only graduated one person going into the next year mm-hmm. and one person ended up not competing, but the bulk of that a team was the same. Um, and so whatever the year is actually going pretty well and we get to orcs, which is like the nationals qualifying tournament yep. in college. And um, I think for a myriad of reasons that obviously I think mock trial is a team activity. So mo- nothing in mock trial can ever be attributed to one particular. Oh team. yeah. But like, I think there were moments where like, I felt like I maybe could have done better. Or, like our theory could have been better that like our team could have been better, but like, you know, I think mock trial is also in a lot of ways about luck a lot of the time. And it can be like, for sure. Wins call it, like if, if it if it just falls in your if, if, the, if the chips fall in your favor, like it's yeah. just, sometimes like and I think that really like is manifested concretely. And like sometimes judges have different preferences. Sometimes judges hate character witnesses. Sometimes yeah. like judges love character witnesses. Mm-hmm. Like you don't know and you don't know what those preferences are before you walk into the courtroom. And so like sometimes like i felt like pretty handedly like that we won a ballot and like we could have lost it by 15 and like that was because the judge like doesn't like dramatic mock trial which like fair you're the person that was assigned to judge this round and like it was my job to like make you think that i was good so like yeah it's just that's just how the how it happened sometimes but um what ended up happening at that tournament was that our b team ended up getting a bid to nationals because we had two teams at the tournament okay I remember being so emotional when that happened because like we hadn't gotten a B team to nationals in such a long time um, because I think the team was in like varying strays, like straits of like distress, like in multiple years and just having the program like consistency uh, to like have a, be able to get a B team through to nationals, which is a really big deal was like so meaningful. And I remember I was just, I started crying like instantly and I was like so happy for them. And then the very next thing we realized is that our A team did not get a bid to nationals. Uh. And I was a se- senior. I was graduating that year. And like, I was struck with the reality that like, 
I was doing trial by combat over the summer that had been confirmed, but like, this was like my last, like that could, that would, could have been my last like team yeah. tournament ever. And it's, and it's just really crazy because the way that year turned out is that we ended up restacking and we ended up doing like half of the A team members, half of the B team members. And I was just so, it was very emotional because in a lot of ways, I felt like I was back like two years ago when I was coaching a team of like all freshmen and sophomores again. And like, but not in a negative way, but like that energy that we had and like that mm-hmm. desire to like want to like prove like ourselves that like, yeah, there, like I like had to feel that again, like as a graduating senior. And then mm-hmm. we had, like we ended up winning our division and going to the final round. And I remember my disbelief like the day before um, the fourth round at the fact that we were in the high, high round four pairing. And I was like, there's just no way that like we could have been this lucky to like have experienced that. And I, so I feel like that was kind of both of them in one. I feel like my biggest failure was definitely like that feeling at orcs of Hmm. like feeling like that I could have done better. And that like, it would have been an even better feeling to have gotten two teams to orcs Mm -hmm. one and had to restock. But then the fact that we were able to like figure it out and like come back together as a team and like just do what this activity that we love and like we didn't even win the final round. But like I think I was arguably prouder in some ways my senior year when we would play second at nationals than my junior year because I think the path to get there was a lot more tumultuous. (laughs) Um, So I want to ask you a follow up question on that, which is. How do you as a leader, whether you're in the position you were where you were a student or whether you're a coach, how do you as a leader handle when you have an A team and a B team and it is stacked and the students know that and you know I believe to be unclear is to be unkind. So yes, there is an A team and there is a B team. We're not making bones about that. Yeah. But and, and and you know, give your A team every chance you can to win because that's where you're pouring your resources, but not make your B team feel lesser or feel like they're just kind of the scraps and being thrown to the wolves. How do you strike that balance as a leader? Yeah, I think, I think the most important thing, um, and, and I think that on our program, we only ran two teams. And the reason why um, for a long time it was because, and still is, is because you can only take two teams to nationals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can, you can run more teams, right? You can have, we could have had Harvard A through F if we wanted to, yeah. but only Harvard A and B can go to nationals. And I think that the most important thing was just having this tone and this expectation that like, yes, there's an A team and a B team, but the whole point is that you're on this team that is competitive and like, will be like, and is going to do good at mock trial. Like we are a good program. And like, Mm -hmm. I think that like, that's a very important perspective to have because I think that it's bad to like go into a B team scenario, especially when it's possible to like, qualify multiple teams like it like actually is a like logistical like practical possibility of the tournament yeah. like Namta. like i just think going into it like oh like it's b team like like we should like not put try as hard as a team is like always going to set you up for failure because like the only reason a team is doing well is because they're like they think they can win so they're practicing a lot and they're mm-hmm. doing their stuff. and like i think mock trial is like much more about hard work and consistency than it is about some natural like god-given talent that like yeah yeah and i think that like my senior year that showed that like our b team that was like primarily freshmen and like a few sophomores like worked their asses off and like got a bid when our a team didn't and i think having that perspective and like making that the motivation and like that being the like general ethos of the team um, is really important. And I think also just like expending equal resources. Like obviously when I was on the team, like when I was captain, I had to be, I was the captain of 18 when we then like stacked, but like a big thing was that like the captains are expected to go to B team practices every so often. And so like help out and like give them support also. Mm-hmm. Cause I think that like, it may feel like, oh, it's just B team, but like B team members are future A team members. And that team unity is so crucial. I've seen that play out over and over again. Exactly. And like, these competitors that like maybe just B team members to you are like going to be the juniors and seniors of this program in two years. And absolutely you are wiser for probably trying to impart as much institutionalized knowledge as you can. Like, I feel like that was my biggest thing. My senior year, it was always just like 
trying to say like this is how we've been doing like this is how we do this mm-hmm. and like like the, we should tell b team that we should start doing this and like we need to codify it and like yeah. all the things that i felt like we had learned as a team in this cohort from like my junior year to my senior year like we wanted to like make sure that they were imparted down and like they were solidified that's great i love that Travis, thanks so much for hopping on. I think a lot of people are going to get a lot of help from this. And uh, I'm excited to hear stories from people who listen to this and go and give great openings and closings. Oh, my God. I hope so. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun. I love talking about mock trial. I think we all know it's such a great activity. So I hope I hope it's helpful. But, you know, listen to your coaches always because <laughs> they know what's best for you. <laughs>